Uh, Hebrews. Have you found Hebrews chapter 1? We're going to be getting into that in just a moment. Um, but before we do, let me tell you a, little, a bit of a story. Um, my son, um, on his first birthday, my eldest son, Levi, we've got a picture up here. We um, gave him a present. It wasn't long after we'd moved here to start the church, and it was his first birthday. And that's a picture of him looking a lot smaller than he is now with my wife, Melanie. And we gave him this present, which was this really cool kind of trike thing. Uh, that you could, they could sit in and it had a thing on the back that we could steer him and then you could change it and he could ride it as he got bigger, etc., etc. And we gave it to him on his birthday and we'd wrapped it up, as you can see there, because it was kind of big. So we'd taken it, I'd taken it out of the box and built it uh, and then we wrapped it in the wrapping paper and then when it was his birthday, we kind of said, this is it, you know, Leo, this is, this is your birthday present, this is for you. And, you know, he was one and we're trying to kind of get the concept of gifts and presents and this is what happens on your birthday because we love you, we bless you. And he started to, he got very excited and he started to pull the wrapping paper off the, the trike as you can see there. But, but then it kind of went downhill a little bit because he was so excited with the wrapping paper. Because the wrapping paper, as you might be able to see, has kind of got Toy Story sort of images on, Buzz Lightyear, and kind of excited and groovy pictures. And when you, when you get that kind of wrapping paper and you crunch it, it makes that really nice, satisfying sort of noise. And it, it feels quite nice in your hands. And then when you rip it, there's another noise. So what Levi did was he would rip a piece off, and then he would literally sit there crunching the paper and ripping it. And giggling it, and giggling, thinking this was really quite fun. This was a nice game that he was playing. And we were sitting there as parents, like, no, there's a present inside, and he just can get it. So he ripped another piece off, and he sat there crunching the paper and ripping it. And this went on, and gradually the present behind kind of got revealed to him, but he just didn't see it. He was more interested in the paper than actually in the gift that we were trying to give him, that it turned out he loved and we used for many years. But he, he missed the thing. He, he missed what was behind it. He got fixated on the wrong thing. And he kind of enjoyed it and had fun with it. But actually, he missed the point. He missed what was behind. He missed the bigger and better thing that was his. And eventually, he kind of, when we spoke to him, he got there. He saw the trike where it was. He got in it, and he loved it. And he'd go up and down the, the, our, our house at the time. Had a long kind of lounge um, lounge diner and he could ride it up and down and he had a wonderful time but but at first it was like um, he's missing the point here he's missing what's best by focusing on kind of the the thing in front of him and he gave value to the wrong thing and what we're going to look now in the next section of Hebrews is a bit like that where the writer to the Hebrews has done this first sort of section we looked at last week we began a new series so we've, we've kicked it off if you've missed it catch up online it's all there plus there's a little video we use to give you an outline of the whole book which is very helpful but the, outline, the, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews has basically said he talks about Jesus and how amazing he is and how far above everything he is and we've entitled this series Jesus is better he's better than kind of everything and that's how it started out. And particularly what he looks at in this next section is Jesus is better than angels. And he's going to go through systematically over the next few chapters, saying, making the case of how Jesus is better than so many other things. And we'll look at the relevance of why angels and why he's superior uh, to this. But he's trying to make the point that you don't miss the main thing. Don't miss the fact that it's actually about Jesus. We can get kind of lost with things in front of us which look shiny and great, but they're not actually the main thing. They're not the important thing. And he starts with looking at angels. Now, why did the author bother with this one? For us in our kind of Western mind, we read that you think of all the places to start. Really? Angels? Come on. 
But he's talking to people who have known their Old Testament, known it well. We saw that last week. And angels feature a lot in the Old Testament. If you read it through there, they're kind of key characters at certain points. Abraham, uh, he got given a promise of a son way back in Genesis. It was an angel who brought that promise. When he went to sacrifice his son Isaac, he thought that's what God had asked him to do. It was the angel that came and stopped him and said, stop that. And actually sacrificed a ram instead. It was an angel who found a wife um, for Isaac. Um, We sign out. It was the angel who led him in there. We heard about Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson. Angels appeared to him at Bethel. It was where he had the the dream of the angels going up and down on the ladder, Jacob's ladder. That's what happens there. We have um, the angels told Jacob to return to Canaan when he had fled in fear of his life. Moses. When he walked the burning bush, who spoke to Moses out of the bush? It says an angel was one speaking, communicating with him out of the bush. It was an angel who led the people out of Egypt and the Exodus. Israel was led into the promised land by an angel. It said the angels brought judgment on David and Israel after he had sinned and led a census of the nation in express kind of disobedience to what God had asked him to do. Angels fed the prophet Elijah. There was a prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor, who were facing the army of the Assyrians. And him and his servant were there. And his servant was terrified and said, how are we going to stand against it? And he said to, his, said to the Lord, open his eyes. And what he saw was a heavenly army of angels surrounding them that were going to protect them from what was coming again. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, Isaiah has a vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And who does he see? Angels worshipping the one on the throne. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Who shut the mouths of the lions? said an angel came and shut the mouths of the lions and protected him. He survived the night. He also gained the life of Daniel. He had visions, crazy visions if you read them, but it was an angel who came and brought the message of what they mean. And if you read the book of Psalms, there are angels all over the place there. And so they were key in the thinking and theology of these Old Testament sort of learned Jews who had now become Christians, it was part of their culture, it was part of what they knew. But the key thing for us is that when um, they they thought about the law and God's word being given to them, their belief system was it was brought by angels. It says that actually in Acts 7, that actually it was the angel who brought the word of God to them. So they were highly revered in their thinking. And the the author, the the, um, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, hey, that's great, that's fine, but don't miss the main thing. Don't miss the final revelation we looked at last week, which actually, as much as you can kind of say, you can appreciate angels, there's something better and bigger above them. And that person is Jesus. And he said, you can give honor and a place to angels, but actually behind them is the one that we should be giving ultimate honor to, and that is Jesus himself. And it's interesting, in today's age, there's a fascination with spirituality and angels turn up and demons as well. I don't know if you've realized that. TV books, films. I went on Amazon and just typed in angels in the book section. Do you know how many hits I got? I think it was over 12,000. And I was scrolling through them, all these books about angels and stuff. And so there is a fascination even in the world today in our skeptical westernness about this stuff going on. So let's, with that in mind, let's have a little read of what the writer of the Hebrews says to these believers. We'll start at verse 5. It says, For which... To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will to be him a father, and he shall be to be a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, this passage, if, you've got, if you're reading from the Bible there, it's a bit compressed on the, um, the uh, PowerPoint there, but actually, there actually, it's actually a series of quotations from the Old Testament. We saw that last week in the video, that there's lots of Old Testament allusions and quotations come up throughout Hebrews. And what the writer there is basically making the point, Jesus is better than angels, let me get out my shotgun of Old Testament scriptures and I will prove it to you by what I say. So we're going to go through, I think there's seven in total, we'll have a little look at them and kind of pull out the points he's trying to make to his believers so they get their, their, kind of their mind aligned and everything in correct perspective. The first thing, the first point he makes is, is that when he's talking about Jesus, he says he has a unique relationship with the Father. A unique relationship with the Father. That first quotation is from Psalm 2. It says, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now that psalm, in its original setting, um, was speaking um, against the rulers of nations who had set themselves up against God and his anointed one. So that's what the, the context is in. And the, the psalmist then basically confirms that actually God, that rebellion will be overthrown and God will rule and reign victorious. And he was pointing to, um, it came to believe, to this anointed Messiah who would one day come and fulfill that role. It was once talking about the king, or the king of Israel, but actually it was taken on a meaning as time went on that actually this is actually pointing to get forward. So one day there is one coming who will actually fulfill this forever and triumph over all. And this one would be a son. He would have a different relationship with God than everyone else. And even those from the line of David who were the kings at the time. He said, actually, no, someone is coming who is going to be greater and better than that. And then we have Jesus turns up. And even in Jesus baptism this psalm is alluded to because what happened at Jesus baptism he went down into the water he came out of the water and what did the voice from heaven say this is my son with whom I am well pleased and so even the early church is quoted in Acts and Revelation took this psalm to be talking about the Messiah and interpreting and saying this is about Jesus. This is who he's talking about. And so the, the writer there, the Hebrew, is saying there is something different about Jesus in his relationship to God than everybody else. This one, he is the son. And we've actually seen that in the previous section. So he's basically reiterating it, but he's throwing it up into context with um, the angels. Because if you read the book of Job, there's a really funny beginning bit where you actually get a glimpse into heaven and it talks about the sons, plural of God, coming before God in heaven. And they're referred to as the sons of God. And that's basically a reference to the heavenly beings, the, the angels who are there. But actually at no point are they referred to as the Son, capital S. 
So there's a different order in what's going on. And Jesus occupies this. He is the one who has special status. He is the one who's singled out for this unique relationship. And then he goes on again. He says, I'll add another quote just to make this point. It says, I will be to him who a father and he shall be to me a son. This is a quote from 2 Samuel 7. And this is where um, Nathan, the prophet, uh, announces a promise to David, basically saying that his son, uh, Solomon, is going to build a temple. And actually through that, there is a line that's going to come, that from the Messiah will come one day. It will be beyond just what David is. And these two together underline this point that Jesus has this special relationship with the Father like no other. Not like other heavenly creatures, angels or whatever. No one has it. He occupies a completely unique status, which gets us into what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. So our New Testament doctrine, we have doctrine of the Trinity states there is one God, He has three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each person fully God. And it's particularly focused on Christ as God the Son. He has a unique relationship with the Father. When he prayed, he prayed to his Father, he taught us. So we've come into that and we we have a heavenly Father as well. But he occupies that place as number one in the system. He is God. He is the one over all things. There is only one Son, capital S, and that is Jesus versus myriads of angels. We read elsewhere, there's, there seems to be so many of them. Um, but actually, Jesus occupies this incredible place as having a relationship with God. The next thing he goes on to say is he is worthy of worship. He is worthy of worship. And he quotes uh, Deuteronomy here. It says, and again, when God brings his first one into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And it's, when he used use the term firstborn there. It's a title of honor, expressing a position or priority or rank. He is number one. And he is basically talking very much about Christ's enthronement there. When he was raised from death, exalted, he is the one above everything. And we are to worship him. Not that he wasn't always worthy of worship in past, because he's always been God. But actually, after his death, resurrection, ex- ascension, sorry, and exaltation, he is the one that we are to look at and worship for all, we do, for all he's done. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see it at the end in Revelation. That the saints and angels are worshipping the one because only he alone is worthy. The next quotation there is actually interesting. It's the only one that doesn't actually mention Jesus. But he makes the counterpoint. He says, angels are just winds. They're ministers, flames of fire. A quote from Psalm 104 there. And basically the point he's making actually is... They are just created beings. There's an impressiveness to it. So if you notice, when angels turn up in the Bible, usually what happens is the first words out of their mouth are, fear not. (laughs) So there's something, wow, about them. Something impressive, something amazing. And we see they're incredibly powerful. They bring the word of God and all these other things that they do. But actually, they're just created beings. And they're just ministers, driving the flames of fire. So when you counterpoint that with who Christ is, who is the one alone worthy of worship because he's God, angels don't even come close. They're not not of the same order. And actually Paul in Colossians 2.18 expressly forbids the worship of angels. Literally, don't worship angels, he says. Actually, as much as they are, there's sometimes a fascination with them because they're kind of cool and interesting and they're depicted really impressively. Um, Actually, no, they're not worthy of worship at all. Only Christ is worthy of worship because he alone is God. They're the one, he's the one you should be looking to, not other spiritual beings or spiritual experiences. So we see he's got his unique relationship with the Father. He is worthy of worship, unlike the angels. The next thing he says, he is 
eternal. He is eternal. There's two kind of long quotes here. Um, the first one from Psalm 45, where it talks about your throne of God is forever and ever, and the scepter of right, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the glory of gladness. This um, Psalm 45 was originally written to celebrate the wedding of a mighty, glorious Davidic king. It was something that would have been said there, and it was just a, a, a kind of a hymn of praise for there. But actually, through that, it, it was pointed then towards actually the Messiah, the one who was going to come, the one who was going to be forever and ever. And he was the one who was going to rule and reign with justice and righteousness, not in a temporary kingly sense because they die, actually, but in an eternal sense beyond that. He was one who was going to go on. And there's the last one there which really kind of underlines that, where it talks about laying the foundation of the world. And you get these fascinating bits where it talks about um, the world wearing out like a garment. It will be rolled up and thrown away. And that's in Psalm 102 he's quoting there. And I don't know if you have ever been to a place that's kind of very wild, very rugged, kind of out of sort of man-made structures. I've been over to Snowdonia a number of times and sort of seen the mountains. And they are staggering and impressive. And you feel very small. And they are very big. Millions and millions of tons of rock and earth. And they are just vast. And I've heard people say things like about the mountains and places like that, the wilderness. They said, it was here before you. And it will be here long after you. Kind of making the point how finite you are, how small you are. But the, the, the created order is so massive and it will kind of outlive you. And it's been here for thousands or millions of years or whoever you want to believe. But it's been here a long time and you haven't. And I've had that sense. But actually when you talk about this from Christ's point of view, what would he say? Those mountains, I was here before you and I will be long here long after you've gone. When this world is wrapped up like a garment, when this world is kind of gone and a new heavens and new earth have come, Christ will always be. He always has been and he'll always be. I remember going to a, um, an art exhibition, because that's what I do, <laughs> a while back. That our, our previous church, or two previous churches, was running, and there was an artist, we had an artist come up from Brighton who was a professional artist, and she put on a display, and she'd actually got an old shirt, and on it she'd actually printed the nations of the world, kind of the map of the world. It was really impressive. And you had this kind of old shirt and the nations of the world and underneath was that verse. It would all be rolled up like a garment and thrown away. And you suddenly had this perspective of like, Jesus is, is, is eternal. He's beyond kind of our understanding and reasoning of time. He's so much bigger. He's so much more. And when, when, they, when he's talking about angels, they say impressive, they're just created they're just created. God is the one who made them. He is eternal. He is the one who is going to be here forever. He always has been. He always will be. And actually, angels don't even come close to that. He is the eternal one. We even sang that this morning, didn't he? He lasts forever and ever. And if you sit down and really think about that, that should make your head hurt and need you go and lie down when you kind of dwell on what eternity really means and who Christ is. Last one. So we've seen those three things. The last one to figure out is he is the sovereign, victorious king. He is the one ruling and reigning. Because it says of that last quote there from Psalm 110, it says, um, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This psalm, actually Psalm 110, I think is the one that's so 
quoted so many times in the New Testament uh, at various points to point to Jesus and he's pointing him as the one who rules and reigns. He is the one who is over everything because uh, sitting at the right hand is a position of power and authority. That's just just what he's talking about. So Jesus is the one who sits and rules in power and authority and his enemies are under his feet. They're like a footstool. They're they're crushed under his feet. He is standing on them and he he is over them. And he is mighty and victorious, which is nothing you could ever say about any angel ever. Christ is the one who is the victorious king. He's God. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. He then rose victorious from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death. He then was ascended to heaven and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one worthy of that position and worthy of that praise. He's the only one who has won that victory. He's the only one by which we can be saved. That's the essence of the gospel. It's all about him. It's not about getting other things in the way. Oh, that's impressive, that's shiny, we'll look at that. No, it's all about the risen king. And he is the one and he is alone. It's kind of like the final point he's making. He said he's like that. He's got this relationship with the Father. He's, he's one we worship. He's eternal. But he's the victorious one. He's the only one who's won that victory. You can't put your faith and trust in anything else because it just won't work. It won't last. Only he's the one by which you can be saved. And the sense of that is also pointing forward to one day when it's wrapped up. He's ruling and reigning authority now. But one day, there's a day coming in the future that has been set by the Father, where we will see it and we will experience it in its complete fullness. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and the rider on the white horse will come and vanquish his enemies forever. And it'll be gone. And he's the only one who can do that. And when you put it like that, and you imagine someone reading it from their kind of Old Testament view, and they've been saved in the New Testament, the angels don't even come close. They don't even come close. Jesus is better. In every single way. And then we get this bottom bit, which is, I, I find interesting, the last verse, 14. After he's made this great case um, of who Christ is, and, and therefore who angels aren't because they don't compare, he basically makes this point about them. Are not all ministering spirits, that's another way of just talking about the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is interesting. From what we looked at those, New Test- uh, those Old Testament um, kind of situations with how the angels have been kind of involved in the story and the advance of God's purposes in the kingdom, they're pretty impressive. They've done things, they've come in power, they've brought judgment, they've brought God's word. They're, they're, there's, there's something pretty awe-inspiring about them. But then he ends at the end and says, they're just ministering spirits out to serve. Who are they going to serve? Those who are to inherit salvation. Who's that? That's, that's, a, that's the church. That's Christians. If you're a believer here, he's basically making this point. So from the start, you're like, wow, angels are amazing, angels are amazing. Oh, yeah, ooh, impressive. No, Jesus is better. Here's why. <laughs> oh, and by the way, those really impressive things are meant to serve you. That's their role. That's their job. They are here to serve you. They are here to stand by you. Those who inherit salvation is just another way of saying Christians, believers, part of the church. Actually, that's their purpose. That's putting them in their right place. Yes, there's an awesome about you. Yes, they're amazing. Yes, there's some incredible stories. But actually, God is the one who's meant to be up there. Jesus enthroned in glory. And those are there sent by him to serve us in what they do. If you read through the New Testament... Angels are there a lot again. 
but they are serving those who follow Jesus, who follow God. Who came and brought the message to Mary? You're pregnant, by the way, and you're going to have a son. It was an angel. Joseph, being the honourable man that he was, thought, my wife, my 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 betrothed's pregnant, it wasn't me. I'll divorce her quietly to avoid a scandal and shame. But what happened? He had a dream and an angel said, you shall take Mary as your wife because she's going to give birth to God's son. Later, when Herod was going to kill all the little babies in Bethlehem to try and destroy the Messiah, what happened? An angel came to Joseph and said, flee to Egypt. Get out. Keep, get safe. Get away. We see in Acts chapter 5, Peter put in prison. The church were praying. What happened? It said, an angel appeared at his prison and let him out. And there was a great bit after that where he comes to the prayer meeting and they wouldn't let him in. Because they didn't think it was him, would they? We're all praying for your release. And Peter's like, I'm released. He's like, no, it's not you, Peter. It can't be you. He said, no, I'm here. Seriously. The angel let me out. That would have been quite a story. Philip, later after the persecution, they came on the church. An angel appeared to him and told him where to go. Where he went to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. Told him the gospel from Isaiah. He went back to his town, his home, and pro- proclaimed who Jesus was. We also find Cornelius. An angel came and spoke to him in Acts chapter 10, bringing him courage. Herod who blasphemed against God. An angel came to him. That didn't turn out well for Herod. Brought judgment. He was killed. And then Paul, an angel appeared to Paul in Acts chapter 27 to tell him actually the future. You are going to stand before Caesar and proclaim my name. Take courage. Have faith now. That is what the future. And so what we find is that there is so many things of angelic uh, Angels worshipping and, and coming and, and attending to Christians and, and those who would believe and those who would follow, but they are second to Christ. They are second to him, and we need to make sure he is in his rightful place, that we don't get it wrong, that we don't put things kind of in the way. And um, simply put, Jesus is better. Now, I was, as I was thinking this and processing thing, I thought, that's great, Lord, wonderful, super news. You are Lord, and you are over everything, and you're eternal. But I'm fairly sure, if I go to real life church on Sunday and talk to my people, there isn't many people who are thinking, do you know what, I'm struggling with the worship of angels. I'm just thinking, angels, Jesus, angels, angels, Jesus. I just, they, that isn't really a kind of a modern thing we have so much. But I'm sure there are other things that we can put in the place of Christ to, that get us off kilter. That we actually put in the places and actually think, you know, some, there's other things we try and elevate because they're shiny and they're impressive and we like them and they may be good in essence, but actually we might think, actually, do you know what? There's other things we put in the place, so actually Jesus isn't the one at the top of our pile, which is where he should be. And I just want to show you a picture and just talk a little bit about it and just see if this helps us kind of take some of these things and apply it to us. Oh, I thought it'd be bigger, but there you go. You, you get the idea. You can read that, can't you? Jesus in bold, have you noticed? See what I did there? That's the level of my skills. That took me a couple of hours to put that together. I'm not, I'm not that good with clicking it. Just kept you know, drawing lines all over the place. But let me just, this was something our church leader told me many, many years ago. And he, as he was talking to me about life and trying to work a few things out. He said, actually, in Christian life, there's always someone's got to be number one. And the only person that should be is Jesus. He's got to be number one. He's got to be over everything. And then he said, actually, but our life then kind of divides up into, he used those four things, which I found helpful. There's work, kind of 
what you do most of the time. It could be a paid job, it could be voluntary, it could be, it could be many things. Then you have your family and friends, which are basically your relationships. Then you have the church, because you're a believer, you're part of God's community, and you need to be active in that. That's what it is. And there's kind of your leisure time things you do just to hang out. Now, obviously, they, there can be overlap in those things, because your work might be looking after children, which is part of your family relationship network, uh, and other things. So you can have overlap in it. But actually, he was saying, actually, because I went to him at that point when he was explaining to you, where and my life was out of kilter, and I'd put other things at the top. And the problem is when you take Jesus off the top and you put something else in the way. And I, to my shame, I think one, definitely one first third have at certain points overtaken Jesus. And Jesus got demoted and actually work has been out there, family, friends, relationships, or chasing them, or church as in the body, the organism that we have has taken the place of Christ at certain points in my life and I've had to adjust. And what we need to look at today, what I'm challenging you to, is examine your life. And is Jesus the one at the top? Is he the number one? Or is something else shiny and good taking its place? Because there's nothing wrong with work. There's nothing wrong with friends and family. There's nothing wrong with church. And there's nothing wrong with leisure time. They're all good gifts from God. They're all good. But the problem is with good things is when they become God things. That's when it goes bad. And so what about your work situation? Is that dominating everything? Is that taking the place? Is that becoming the, the number one thing in your life? Is that pushing over everything? Is the time you're devoting to that then taking time away from your relationship with Jesus and sometimes the other things in there? If you assess your life and think, actually, am I out of kilter? Do I need to reassess? Do I need to take a step back and re-examine where it should be? What about family and friends? What about relationships? What about even chasing relationships you don't have? I've been there or actually having family and friends, particularly in our culture, in this particular part of the world, in this town, sometimes our children can be the, the things that we want, getting them into the right school and making sure they're performing and they're doing better than the other kids, and it's all about competing, get better, get better, get better, and we can have that sucked into it. Chasing relationships, we want this, we want that, we want to do that. Sometimes chasing relationships that aren't helpful for us, ungodly ones. Those things can take the place of Christ. Even working in the church can actually overcome it. We can be too so kind of good with doing stuff that actually we miss the person we're doing it for the person we're doing it about and the last one just leisure if that's what you want if you're always seeking to be kind of chilling out and doing that and not taking responsibility that again can be problems with you and what I'd love you to do this week in your life groups is when you go is to maybe have a look at that and just share where do you think your life is at the moment where is it happening? Where is it off kilter? Is there anything you need to adjust? Is there anything you need to kind of do? It might even be to say that actually just, I've just kind of, nothing's particularly taken God's place. I've just neglected him in it. It's something that's just, my relationship with him is just kind of, you know, tails off. The business of life, things crowd in and I need to reignite that. I encourage you, if you haven't read, not reading along with us in the book of Hebrews, get into that. Watch the video, give yourself a head start. Okay, that's where I'm going. Start reading it, start studying it, start thinking about it, going through it. You, read it through, you can read it through slowly. My wife said to me the other day, she said, I read it through really quickly, now I'm going to start doing it slowly. I thought, what? She said, when we start to read a book, and we're going to study the book of the church, so I read it through as quick as I can, like a couple of days, read the whole book. And I was like, okay. And she said, then I start reading it slowly. So I've read the whole book, got kind of an overview. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I might try that. Speed reading. Read, read the whole book so you've got a sort of an idea of the flow. And then she said, oh, I'm going to go back and start reading it 
sort of slowly and taking a bit of time over it to try and digest what's going on with it. I submit that to you as a good use of your time because we're going to be teaching through this the rest of this term into next term, all about Jesus, all about him. One last thing I want to add is um, just a question really on, based on that last verse. Because it basically said, God's, God's there, he says that the angels there are there for ministers to serve us, to serve the church. And we're not to be going to chase them or look after it, but my question for you is, what are you facing at the moment? What are you facing? Because we know the, the readers of this book were facing persecution and trial and stress. We find that out, I think it's chapter 10 that comes out. But these guys are under pressure these believers in the church. We don't know what form that took. It could be physical, as in they were being taken off to prison or something, or being beaten. It could have been from other areas of just a pressure to conform, or whatever was going on. But actually, within it all, Jesus is better. He is better than angels. But actually, that whole, Jesus wants to serve us, and love us, and help us. That's why he came. He said, not come to serve to serve. He's ruling and reigning the king, but he's a servant king. And he said, actually, the resources of heaven are here for you. They're here for you. And I want to just change the day. Actually, what are you facing? And let's ask God to come and help you in your situation. Because whatever you've got, whatever's on your plate, God is able to move in that situation. That's one thing I've, I've kind of struck me looking at this and looking at last week about who Christ is. He is all sufficient. There is nothing outside his control, nothing outside his power, nothing outside his grace and mercy that with him you can't cope with. Now sometimes... He puts you through it. He doesn't take you out of it, but gives you grace to cope, stretches you. Sometimes he brings deliverance, and it's kind of, we're over. But actually, all those things are what God can do, and he is able to do them for you today. And so I don't know what you're going through, but I want to say as we respond in a time of worship now is to bring those towards Jesus. We'll maybe get time to pray for you, but I want to just take, that, take those both away. Assess your life. Where does everything stand in order with everything else? Make sure it's in the right place. But whatever you're going through right now, Whatever's kind of number one on your plate. You might be thinking, I don't care about that. This is right in my face and I can't see anything else. Well, we want to pray and we want God to come and minister you in that situation because that's what he longs to do. So do you want to stand up? And I'm just going to pray for you. Finish. Can the band come and just sort of get themselves ready? That would be brilliant. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. And whatever struck you out of this, it could be something I mentioned. It could be something different. God seems to work like that. He just drop things in, not dependent on me. But actually, I'm just going to pray into those things for you. And if you know there's something you need to respond to, now's the time to do a bit of business with God. Now's the time to just say, you know, if, if it's something, if your life's out of kilter, you need to repent, which is just turn around. Just say, yeah, I'm going to need to try, Lord, give me grace. I'm going to put that right. I'm sorry for what I've done. I want to now kind of sort that out. You know what that is. If you know you're under pressure in a situation, it could be a financial thing, it could be a health thing, it could be a work-related thing, it could be a relational thing, it could be so many things it could be. I want to pray that God's grace comes to you in that and his resources come to you in that because that's what's available for us right now. So Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are better than angels. But we want to thank you that you are the sovereign king Lord we want to thank you that you are the son second person of the trinity that you are God Lord we thank you that you are the one worthy of worship 
truly worthy of worship. We give our worship to so many things in this life, Lord, but you alone are the one who is worthy of worship. And Lord, we thank you that you are eternal. You have an eternal perspective on everything. You were here in the beginning. You will always be here. And you'll be here when this earth is kind of thrown away like an old T-shirt. Lord Jesus, we thank you of that of that assurance we have knowing the one that you're controlling it all and you're ruling over it all. Because <laughs> if we did it, we would make such a hash of it. But you're not. You're good. And Lord Jesus, I ask you to give us grace today to not miss the main thing. To not get fascinated with the things of this world, the shiny things. The things that make us go, ooh, and isn't that good. The things that don't give long-term satisfaction, only you do. Lord, I ask you to give us grace to keep our eyes on you fixed on you above everything and Lord God I don't know what we're all facing here in different situations in different lives Lord but whatever it is Lord I pray you give us grace to face that you know what your thing is so maybe you want to just tell him now he knows anyway but it's good to tell him it's a good exercise just tell him what you're facing what your pressure is what your struggle is might be questions you're asking Lord I don't know about this I don't know about that and I just want to say to you guys God knows your situation he knows everything you're going through he knows how you're feeling he knows how you felt last night this morning he knows what's buzzing around your head and I want to tell you he loves you and he is for you and he is with you in that situation And the resources of heaven are available to you today. His grace, his mercy, his strength, his deliverance, his healing, it's all here for you today. And whatever you're facing, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come and meet us as a people. That you would touch hearts, touch lives. That you would break into situations. You'd bring assurance. You'd bring hope. You'd bring peace. You'd bring blessing. You'd bring the sense of your presence that no matter what the wind and the waves crash, that we will stand firm on you like the house built on the rock. Lord Jesus. Lord God, we want to say we love you and we praise you.